This is the Quip and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Devin Rue, professional fantasy cartographer and illustrator. And I'm Simon, also known as Wandering DM, and I'm your co-host and a professional narrative designer. Uh, hi, my name's Ed Greenwood. Uh, 56 and counting years ago, I created something called the Forgotten Realms, um, which was later adopted as an official setting for the D&D game, and that's what most people in the industry will know me from. But I have uh, written for just about every major property over the years, including Middle-Earth and Oz and all of those. Um, and uh, I do uh, Hollywood script fixes when Hollywood is working. I'm a narrative designer for uh, computer studios like uh, Spearhead and NetEase, and um, I do voiceover work. Uh, I mm, all sorts of stuff. How on earth did you get into doing this for a living? Let's start there. Oh, okay, for a living. Uh, I was basically a six-year-old kid writing fantasy short stories to entertain myself um i had uh, because i would read stuff in my father's den um and come pounding up the stairs and say hey dad this one was great uh where's the where's the next one where's the sequel and he'd say well son that uh, author died in 1938 if you want any more you're gonna have to write him yourself and i'd say okay and go pounding back down the stairs and start writing something horrible um but in the style of whatever I'd read. So I was learning to write by copying the styles of authors, good and bad, because some of them were horrible pulp. Like I, I found this book called um, The Nymph Said No. Um, yeah, uh, wartime, uh, what passed for wartime salacious. I spent my entire uh, teenage years searching for The Nymph Said Yes and never found it. I guess my dad hadn't bought that one. I don't know. But um, I wasn't thinking of this as for publication or anything. Just I wanted more stuff to read because I'd read everything in in my dad's den. And he had like about 40,000 books in there. And some of them were dull as ditch water, like, you know, um, radar physicist stuff. And um, the proceed the international proceedings of the IEEE which is like international engineering. And I'm going, I don't know what this is, but it's thick and leather bound, so I'll read it. Um, and I'd run out of stuff, so I was writing new stuff. And unbeknownst to me, my father was taking all this stuff to work. And he worked uh, in a um, radar firm in Canada. They were trying to stop, you know, the Russians invading over the pole sort of thing, this height of the Cold War. And, uh, uh, and he'd pass them around and his co-workers would say oh Bob this one was pretty good um you know um have the kid write a sex scene next time my father would say he's five or he's six you know <laughs> but but I <laughs> so no field research you know uh, so um I was just writing for my own entertainment now there were war games um particularly played by the military simulation games and they were similar to the later spi games you know hexes zones of control um case rules and if you go back to um the right issues of life magazine back in those days you will actually find a uh, an american civil war 
on the Shenandoah Valley and so on um, as a two-page spread war game. Because as long as you could dress it up as American history, it was somehow okay. You know, it was serious stuff. Part of our nation building. And I say our, you know, I'm Canadian, but you know what I mean. Um, it was considered okay. It wasn't like, oh, Tom, Johnny's playing games downstairs in the basement. He's awfully quiet. Better go check on what he's doing. It was like, oh, yes, this is part of our country's history. Oh, yes, that's okay then. Um, but there weren't, there wasn't an industry. And I wasn't writing to make money. And then when later on, when Dragon Magazine came along, I did write articles. And as I started playing D&D in the realms, and I had players, I thought it was sort of like somehow fair if I was going to inflict a new monster or magic item on them. If it had been published in the magazine, it first of all, it had gone through other eyes an editor so that was like in theory um, balanced or better than mine on my own number one and number two uh everybody in those days if they had the money and i happened to grow up in a fairly affluent area um bought and read dragon magazine or read a friend's copy looked over the shoulder at a friend's copy but they didn't bring them to the gaming table that was a sort of breach of etiquette so they would vaguely remember what they'd read earlier in an earlier issue. And that vaguely simulated what their character might have heard in a tavern in the setting. So they weren't they weren't reading out at the table, oh, this thing has eight plus eight hit dice. We just have to yell Thursday and it falls over dead. You know, um, they, they weren't using that at the table, but they were, um, it, it was a, it worked as a simulation, so. And, and I felt better about that. And so, unbeknownst to me, Jeff Grubb, who was a staff designer at uh, TSR, had written a white paper um, for just for distribution in-house, a proposal for a unified game world for the second edition of the game. Because uh, Gary had been ousted from, Gary Gygax had been ousted from TSR. Lorraine didn't want to give him a penny, so no more Greyhawk. Then she'd taken all the company's resources for two years, and that's like 200 people and at all of their paychecks and so on, to create Dragonlance, which was a big epic story like Lord of the Rings. So what do you do for an encore? And they were they had published modules that didn't fit with anything, like the Desert of Desolation series, which had Egyptian pyramids and they needed a kitchen sink world. They could put everything in. They also had um, TSR UK. Uh, they had done, or Doug Niles, who was a history teacher and a staff designer um, at TSR, had done an Albion campaign, which was supposed to be like fantasy, um, matter of Britain, mythic Britain, UK. And it had been orphaned when they changed plans. Oh, it's gonna be a reprint house only okay what do we do with this oh okay so if we buy this guy's world we'll sink his moonshades and put the Elvian campaign there and that's what they did and jeff grubb who read dragon and said well you know there's this guy who's writing about this world um so literally he cold called me at the library i work at a public library in in uh, the suburbs of toronto up in canada and 
And he cold called me and said, do you have a complete detailed world at home or do you just make this up as you go along? And I said, yes and yes. And he said, oh, okay, well, um, here, here, do you have pencil and paper? And I said, Jeff, it's a library. <laughs> I have pencil and paper. And, and he said, good, write down this phone number and wait till after five o'clock and then call it. And that was his boss, Mike Dobson's number. And the whole point was, if the conversation went well, it was out of the building, off company time, it could just never happen. But, but you know, and they just said, we want to buy your world, would you be? And I was thinking, oh, the color maps I'd done in my own world, you could see the, the pencil crayon strokes in the seas with my blue pencil crayon. Because, you know, I was in a hurry and I was filling in seas. Um, I, I did the... Um, the details of the world with a Stadler pen on black and white and you know I could I could if I took the time I could get pretty good with the fiddly bits the fjords and so on but um, doing the um, big blue areas it was like ugh. so I thought I can get good printed maps so I said yes <laughs> and that's how it <laughs> yeah but that's it that that's the short that's the short version of how I started doing because I wasn't even thinking of it for money now okay from the point of view of someone today it was a pittance but at the point of view then I was getting to do official monsters and I was getting paid 25 bucks US per monster which in those days was a lot of money and um, that was in one of the periods in which American currency was worth more than Canadian, so it was like even more. And I could use it to support my reading and gaming habit by going to a gaming store and buying stuff. So happy as a clam. So what are you currently working on? Yeah, yeah, there's NDAs all over the place. Uh, I'm working on a, um, a game that changes its name all the time um, for Spearhead. Um, and uh, I am also working on um, things for netties I can't talk about at all. And I am working on um, Askliath, the uh, which is Akli in modern um, Gaelic, which is Viking ruled Dublin, um, detailing an entire city for Fate of the Norns. Um, Andrew Volkoskis is diceless because it uses runes, role, a Viking role-playing game. Um, the current edition of that game is um, Fate of the Norns Ragnarok. So you, as you can probably figure out, the world is dark and cold because, you know, the, the less, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. So I, we are completely detailing a fantasy city, every building, NPCs and every one. So it's taken me three and a half years so far. Um, and um, yeah, there's that. And then I'm working on stuff that I probably can't talk about. I'm just trying to think yeah and then i of course i i have a a patreon and a discord where i talk about the realms constantly and i do youtube videos about the realms to just to cover the realms lore that um sadly seems to be neglected in the current edition of the game because um um the company is uh concentrating on the sword coast so that they can literally tell an outside licensee uh, you can do anything you want in your little other part of the world because there's no lore about it which of course is not the case uh, but um, 
companies, you know, tend to um, wa water passes under. Yeah, yeah, and they 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 forget what they agreed to in earlier contracts, which were, you know, a predecessor company years ago, and they just move on. And um, I can't move on. I'm tied to the previous contract, so I go. Uh, <clears throat> wait a minute. Uh, anyway, so that's where I am right now. Um, and yeah, there's. I, I just uh, worked on another Norse thing for Lou Anders, a Tales from Stolke's Hall. And, oh, there's tons of stuff in, a, in an anthology game on in which I had a um, a, uh, a society in which dragons um, don't want to kill each other. So they have these, these sort of play combats for, for ranking, except somebody uses the play combat to start murdering dragons so it's a a dragon it's a dragon uh sherlock holmes story dun, dun, dun. so speaking of of details like this that eventually that leads to from a, a simple idea of a caravan company a long haul caravan company and then that does a lot of world building to just say there is such a thing as long haul caravans means that there are or at least if we if we look at you know our world uh for instance so the i'm thinking of the great um like the or the, the trips on the oregon trail that were taken in uh in the states there had been uh technological advances in how caravans were built early what we could call like very early uh suspension systems for caravans because sitting in a in a, a a coach or or a wagon all day for you know months on end uh, you want something that's going to stay relatively stable and to some extent comfortable um but that is something that for it just happens that i had to do research on that for for um for a book before and uh and that means that there are certain things that would now either if they do not already exist would probably be on the mind of a lot of people as like okay what's the how can we improve what's the next step going forward um and if it does exist well that means that you know it changes a lot of things if mod well early modern suspension exists for for coaches and all that well all of a sudden it's more appealing to travel by coach you're not only going to do it if you need to or due to a certain like the, the distance and having to um even for i mean i'm i'm my, my brain is just spinning so i'm having like 500 ideas at the same time but the point was the point was just the idea of oh yeah these are long haul well this means that a lot of tiny other details exist and these details also create ripple effects that affects other areas of life for other people and it's something that i think not everyone thinks about when designing a world that one one thing that you think would that seems logical for someone that lives in you know in our modern society that oh yeah of course this is this is a given but that wasn't always the case it needed to happen and in order to happen yeah. And, some other puzzle pieces needed to be put and in it, place. And it changes thinking, too. I mean, a lot of the stuff that... Uh, there, if, if, if you are making a change that threatens someone's livelihood, and, of course, the 
when I was a little kid in school, it was the buggy whip manufacturers. You know, <laughs> if you go away from a horse in the buggy, you are threatening the livelihoods of the buggy whip manufacturers. They are going to try and stop you. And if they can't do it by legislation, they might do it by killing you. Because if the secret dies with you, it's too late once the secret's out and everybody's had a good look at these things and bought them because they can make their own. But if they can, they can stamp it out before, it, then they will, and, and just out of self-interest. Mm -hmm. Or they'll try and buy you up and control you in some way, like blackmail you or get a hold over you. You know, um, it's the old grab your wife and kids thing. Um, the the old thing that is always lampooned. You know, beautiful shop you got here. Be a pity if something happened to it. You know, um, that sort of stuff. And of course, that's all adventure opportunities. But yeah. You're quite right. Everything in the world, if it's a living world that works, and works in quotation marks, then everything's interconnected. Something you think you can do in isolation, like, and and by the way, for world builders out there who are starting it for the first time, I'm now going to point out an obvious trap. And the obvious trap is, oh, I'm going to sit down and write out the lineage of this royal family or uh, whatever um, from since the earth cooled. Okay, sure. If you want to waste time and fill what, and, and that's the thing, as, as I have white hair and white beard, I have figured out I don't have many years left. But when you're a teenager and you're, you're into gaming for the first time, the world is your oyster. You have like thousands of years ahead of you, don't you? No, you don't. So don't waste them on lineages until it matters to the story. Which it will when you're designing later on. But for now, um, don't spend the time on the history so much as spend the time on what do I want it to look at right now? What meets the eye in this city or port right now? Because that's what you need as a dungeon master, as a world builder, as a designer right now. And once you put it in place, this is what I want people to see and this is what I want to be here. Then you turn to the history. Okay, how did it get things that way? I have to come up with some reason it, it got that way. But don't start with the history, because then it will dictate what people see. Oh, well, that couldn't have happened because this. And th though there's nothing wrong with that, once you've got everything built together, at the beginning, it's taking away your fun and restricting your design possibilities. So make sure you do it the other way around. Anyway. Right, because that... That does work uh, a lot easier if you design what you, um, whether it's your you're a writer and talking about your readers or your uh, your players. If you design the world that they want to see first, and where they'll be playing in, and then work backwards in the timeline, that makes that makes it a lot easier yeah. for you to focus on the the explanation of from point A to point B. I kind of try and tell like all of my, um, uh, I have a cartography course on my Patreon and I tell everyone like your maps are in the past. So they're telling part of your world's story and they're not technically the absolute here and now. So it's okay if there's not things on your maps that are immediately indicated or, you know, cause you can explain cause even in our world, we have towns and cities that were on maps that never existed, that mm -hmm. once existed no longer do. You know, 
Um, and and that's okay. There's a it doesn't have to be perfect, and it doesn't have to be exactly what your players will uh, encounter when they get there. But you yeah. need an explanation once they get there why it's not or why it is and it's not on the map. And and having stuff in maps that is suggestive but not entirely entirely accurate. And you know the real world thing is, hey something that's fogged out on this Google map. Why? And and it's a mystery and everybody loves a mystery. Um and and unsmiling men in dark sunglasses will show up at your door if you inquire too closely. You know, and there there's all you know, we're we're oh, we're in an adventure. Um what is the most fun thing that you've designed? What do you have the most fun creating? I think the perennial thing that I have the most fun designing is wacky noble families um because having money and power allows people to indulge their eccentricities um if you're scrabbling just to feed your family you don't have time to learn how to ride a horse if you don't need to um or try and breed dragons it's you know not necessarily a safe up uh, occupation so if you don't have a financial need to do it or you know because or the king has ordered you to do it you you there go and breed the dragon you know if 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 that's not the case people aren't going to do it if they're powerful wealthy nobles and they decide that they like to eat live iguanas they're going to do it um perhaps with bad results and they're they're always going to have feuds with um, their their hated detested rivals, the people across the street in their mansion, you know, and and therefore you can have loads of fun designing despicable people, bored people, people who want to hire adventurers for plausible deniability, you know, as in I need someone to go and do something illicit and that I can deny I would ever hire. Because who would hire a bunch of landless adventurers from somewhere else to do something to steal the king's whatever? Um, you know, so the and therefore they're they're fun adventure drivers again, and they're they're just fun. Period. You you get to do things um, with your design thing that you that you wouldn't normally do, and it is just great fun, and. It, it spawns adventure ideas in your brain just while you're working on them. So, yeah, that's another cool thing that right. uh, that I tend to really enjoy doing. It, uh, you see, favorites and absolutes, I have trouble with those just because, oh, you know, yeah, no. all these years. And I go, geez, am I remembering everything? Uh, but, but, <laughs> but no, it, I, I can tell you flat out that those are some of the most fun things to do. Because, oh, here we go again. Crazy nobles time again. And and I've had the opportunity in real life to um, know some uh, real nobility and thinking, yep, yep, they're crazy, all right. Oh, here we go again. And, uh, <laughs> or or they get to do things that I don't get to do. This because I I'm not independently right. wealthy and I'm not crazy. Um, so this would be fun. So, do you have any hobbies outside of this hobby? Uh, yes. Um, oh, okay. Um, making millions of dollars. It isn't working very well, but that's my hobby. 
Um, That's my hobby too. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, oh. Uh, yeah. I too am not doing very good at it, but I am trying. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> A book collecting. I have uh, four hundred thousand books so far. Um, and uh, where? Where whoa. on earth? What? Okay. Okay, Ed. We need to talk. Uh, like first off. Yes. <laughs> okay. Kitty's at home. Did you? Um, you can buy reconditioned shipping containers that can no longer be stacked eight high because they've had some horrible damage done to them. But they can be welded so that they're watertight again. And you can buy these pensioned off shipping containers for a mere, well, depending on where you are in the world and when you're buying them, a mere three, four, five thousand bucks, depending on where you are and their size. So if you live in the country like I do, um, all of the locals in this small village in the country, uh, they have rusting cars, tractors, seats that they removed from long gone vehicles um, scattered around their acreage. So, you know, if they're out gardening, they don't have to walk far without sitting down because there's something to sit down on. Or there's an old car that you can stash something in if it's hailing or something. Well, I don't do that. I, I give my, my old cars to the local junk dealer in, in exchange for a few bucks towards new tires for the new one. Instead, I park shipping containers all over my acreage and fill them with books. Um, you remember I said earlier Joe Jobs? Well, the Joe Job was going to be go out to a shipping container and start stacking stuff sky high so I can cram some stuff that's in my house now in the shipping container so that I can have some floor acreage in inside my house back because um, for some strange reason, somebody wants to walk on it. Anyway, there you go. That's that's what you do if you want to collect tons of books. You need shipping containers. I have to say that this is my absolute favorite bit of knowledge about you. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not exactly sane and I'm not exactly normal, but then I am a creative and none of us are. But yeah, that, that's the fun bit. Um, I collect shipping containers. Do you have, I mean, again, it, it's not in absolutes, but do you have um, authors that you prefer? Like, what kind of books? Is it just any books? Like, now I need to know all about your book collection. I'm sorry. Fuck the rest of the podcast. I need to know about the books. Okay, well, um, <laughs> there are two sorts of books that, that light my fire. The fantastical uh-huh. of all sorts. So... And swords and sorcery and high fantasy were my first loves. Okay. Right. So authors like Lord Dunsany, uh, Roger Zelazny, uh, Fritz Leiber, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, John Belairs, um, you know, uh, tons and tons of authors like that. And and I have like um, multiple copies of, of favorites because when you loan a book, you never get it back. So you... Right. You buy multiple copies so you can loan it to a friend knowing you'll never see it again. And that doesn't bother you because it's copy number 36. And then there's the um, books I love for research purposes. I tend to have uh, books like um, how, to, how to Be a Tudor, How to Be a Victorian. Um, all sorts of useful reference books like that. Um they light my fire, and I'm surrounded by them right now. Um, I'm just going to look over here and see what I have. Oh, yes. Uh, hmm. Yes, all sorts of stuff. Uh, living like a tutor. 
how to steal the Mona Lisa. Uh, lost languages. Lost kingdoms. See, all this sort of stuff. It's grist to my mill, so... Um, that's the sort of stuff I surround myself with. Uh, books books are more important than anything else in life except food and a and a safe place to take a dump. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, it, assuming your toilet's working and um, you can feed yourself tonight, books are the next thing. I realize there are tons yes. and tons of people uh, in middle America who'll go, God, this guy's nuts. I, ne- I never, you know, um, <laughs> because there are people in this village where I live in who, you know, will say things like, what do we get him for Christmas? A book. No, he already has a book. No, that that's a... Yeah, yeah, but I mean, that that's a real conversation they have, or they'll say, oh, what do you need books for? You got your Bible, you got your farmer's almanac, you got your calendar, what else do you need? Okay. <laughs> um, but I'm not that sort of person. I'm the other sort of person who has to have all, all the books. And when when I have to withdraw something in the library like delist or deselect something, I'm always saying, no, we can't get rid of this one. Or, but but surely you're not going to, like, we paid good money for that. Was, the public paid for that. That should never leave our shelves. And they go, Ed, you can't keep every old book because you like it. So we get rid of it, and two weeks later, somebody asks for it. I go, see? I told you we should have kept it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do they listen? No. How many times do you go home with those books? Oh, I I don't, because I'm depriving somebody else in the world of the chance to discover those books. True. Um, do you collect, like, first editions, or that doesn't matter? That really doesn't matter. I have a lot of first editions because I'm old and I just bought them, whatever it was when it was brand new. But no, I don't, I'm, I'm not into the, oh, I'm going to pay millions for that book. No, I just want to have the book. I need a reading copy. Um, more than I need to have, you know, I, I don't need it signed. Um, I was privileged over the years to meet and befriend a lot of um, authors who are no longer with us. Terry Pratchett, Roger Selasny. I got to see Professor Tolkien, but not meet him. I was a very young kid and it was a very large lecture hall. Um, oh. But I would never bother them for signatures. I would just hang out, hang out with them. And in those days, nobody had phones that had cameras in them. Right. Mm-hmm. It just didn't exist. So I have nothing but the memories. I don't have signed this and signed that. But because I wasn't pestering them for autographs, I got to spend a lot more quality time with those people and hang out with them. And they would visibly relax because, oh, he's not trying to get an autograph out of me, which is, I mean... Don't mind giving autographs, but it oh sigh, I'm now I'm up. I'm I'm meeting a fan. I'm on, you know. Um you're, whereas, you're now working. Working, yeah. Yeah, that that for me is is um true rewards because you know, we can't take it with us, any of this stuff. So building this okay. huge book collection, somebody else is gonna have it or they're gonna dumpster it um after I'm gone. Um, so I'm going to try in my will to make provision for it so it goes to a good home somewhere. Um, you know, I have these wild plans that I shouldn't ever have had because I, I'm a writer and I get paid in cheese <laughs> sandwiches um, of having, like, a library. 
no, a writer's right. retreat so people can come and, and mm -hmm. always look at my book collection. And, you know, no, that's probably not going to happen because it costs money to build buildings. Um, and I, as I've discovered, as I want to endlessly expand my house uh, to make room for more books. And, you know, people say, you could, like, just get rid of your books. And it's like... No. no, absolutely not. You are dead to me <laughs> no, now. Yes, can't. yes. Yeah, what kind of sacrilege <laughs> yeah. is that? Yeah. The nerve. Yeah. How dare they? How, uh, how fucking dare yeah. you? It's yeah. right. Obviously, you're uncivilized. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, right. yeah. The yeah. nerve. How dare they? My God. Uh, anyway. Um, so, yeah. Uh, speaking of, you know, things that you should never do barbaric things you should never do with your your books um i have i have a question for you do the books that you collect not necessarily just the ones that you might use for research um do you dog ear them do you dog ear the pages do you write in them do you leave post-its no, in them none of those things in fact if i've read a book that was new as opposed to found it in a thrift store uh you won't know it's been read I won't crack the spine. I will hold it. It will keep it clean. I do not eat or drink near the books when I'm eating them. I'm just out of habit. You don't do that. Because I grew up reading my father's books. And uh, although I was would laugh at, at what he considered smut, as in Forever Amber and Peyton Place, those were pretty racy the time um i wanted my father not to know i'd been dipping into his books and you see this was a doomed thing because my father was not stupid the idea was to he and i could both pretend that i hadn't touched the books if i left them absolutely pristine so then we wouldn't have to have those awkward little conversations like you know son um I don't really think you should be reading that yet. Um, and as a result, I never, ever had any of those conversations. There were no books were off limits. So I was reading about all sorts of stuff. Thank you for, for vindicating uh, all the times that I've uh, argued with my friends that you should not crack a spine. You should not dog ear your pages. You shouldn't write in books. Yeah. I don't get people. I, do okay. That. Uh, there is an exception. Um, family Bibles. Uh, I'm, if, if a family is recording lineage of their own family and you, you come across this because it's not your family Bible, you found it in some antiquity store or whatever, um, and it's fascinating to read these trails left by other people. But yeah, I would never do it myself. Um, I would never treat a book that way. Mm. Um, and it can be fascinating to come across things, uh, ticket stubs, to um, plays that closed on, on Broadway um, years and years before you were born. Somebody was there. Somebody took in that. And fascinating. So, yeah, I can appreciate it when I come across it, but I would never do it myself. No. No, that's it. Yeah, finding, finding an old, like a used book with a... Um... Like you said, a ticket stub that was used as, as a as a bookmark, for instance. That's like a yeah, piece of history. Yeah. But post-its mm. uh. and writing, I've uh, I've seen people just 
scratch out passages in novels because they didn't agree with what was written. Oh, yeah. And if you work in a library, there was always the, we used to call them the censor brigade. I mean, somebody would have a a thing in a novel where um, it's a wartime novel and one of their buddies gets killed in front of their eyes and they go, damn. And they scratch out the damn. That's a swear word. Take it out. You're thinking, that's bloody mild for the what that character must be feeling having seen that right now um but it how dare you censor the author how dare you censor the character but they do because oh propriety and you, you know so yeah um it happens mm-hmm. and and when you work in a library you get quite used to it but it doesn't mean you approve of it or want it to go on happening it's like oh geez you couldn't leave well enough alone eh? um and I realize that, you know, when you're reading a book, it's a conversation between the author and the, the writer, but you don't want it to be that sort of conversation. <laughs> now, do you ever do you ever take instances like that and and write them into your fantasy, whether you're extracting revenge on people who write in books or not? Or like how much of your your real world sort of leads into your stories. Ah, okay, directly? No, not at all. Indirectly? Right. All my characters in all my novels come through the doors of the library every day. That's one of the reasons I would never want to stop working in the library until I had to, for whatever reason. Um, because not only right. do I um, have a great group of co-workers, so it's sort of like having a second family to hang out with every day, I mean, I happen to work right now in a, in a small town library. I'm the only man they've ever hired on staff since they opened their doors in 1759. So I'm a combination scapegoat and mascot. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I mean, it, also the beard, very goatish anyhow, so that works. Yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, it's endless grist to the mill. Uh, working in public service, meeting public. And it actually gives you practice in portraying characters because you can guess what some people are going to say next and get it right. And you can guess what some people are going to say next and get it very, very wrong. And uh, unless you are opening your mouth and saying injudicious things yourself, it doesn't cost anything. It's not a something that's going to harm anyone in the real world um you're just an observer so yeah it's fun and it's good practice and it you can bring people to life effortlessly by just copying what you saw and heard in real life i i love that i mean i i enjoy people watching it's the biggest reason that i go to comic cons when i can i'm immune compromised so unfortunately I am still not allowed around any of it, uh, but I, it and which just absolutely makes me really sad because it's my favorite form of people watching. Because um, the thing that I love the most about uh, this hobby, this industry, is um, it's extremely emotional. This is us telling our wildest fantasies, our greatest dreams, our our hopes and dreams for ourselves, whether as heroes or as villains or just you know living other lives and um i think it's amazing to watch 
other people play games and really get into their characters, but when they cosplay, when they when they meet their idols, um, when they get around other people that obviously really kind of understand that that the whole geekiness around this, um, they're so much more relaxed. They're so much more themselves. Uh, people watching at Comic Cons is like my favorite thing in the world. When writing for a historical or semi-historical setting, um, where do you draw the line at we're going to keep things that have already existed, that have already happened? And where do you veer into, okay, well, this part of this person's life or of these events is going to be fictionalized? Like, what is your preference as a world builder, as a writer? If it's totally up to me, I would like to make things as historically accurate as possible. Um, because I like having goalposts to design within. Um, it is more fun as a designer mm -hmm. to use them as obstacles and, and turn them to benefits. Like, I don't want to sanitize real-world history. In the case of Athcliath, first map we have of, of real world dublin is john speed's map in this 1687 i think it is um so much later in the period um but we mm -hmm. do know from records not map records but records uh, lots of street names and the problem is that the church as in the christian church um bought up areas mm -hmm. of land in the city and they'd tear down the slums or whatever that was there, and they'd put up a new church. And and a graveyard and a manse and the whole nine yards. And then they would take names of the streets they destroyed and reapply them to the new construction. So the names would survive, but the streets had migrated just a bit. And this happened over and over and over again. So if you look at the fantasy version that I did of the city, all the street names are authentic. The, the actual locations of the streets may not be, because we don't know. I'm literally making it up. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing is we know from the get-go we're doing something that didn't happen in real life. We're doing Ragnarok. And we think um, there are two ways of, yeah. well, there's a whole bunch of ways of playing the city, but you can play it as a no magic. So it's literally um, brawny people with weapons hacking each other and money. Or you can play it full magic, as in Fae live invisibly in every single building in the city and treat the humans who think they own the buildings as pets or things to be duped and so on or you can play it somewhere in between but because of that and the magic working and so on we're already in a situation that isn't the same as the real world so you're just deciding decisions you're going to make in terms of um the design thing uh citric and the one-eyed king is a real historical figure he he did um kill the uh um Hibernian, future Irish, Celtic king, and 
rule. Uh, we we chain we we kept him alive longer than the real one was, and we kept him as king inside um, Athglass because he got pushed out and became king of Northumbria. And uh, his son actually stepped in, and we just said, "Forget it. We're going to conflate the two of them for our purposes because we're doing an end of the world thing." Mm -hmm. And as the world gets colder and darker because the crops have failed because no sun in the sky um so food is becoming scarce and everybody is rushing to this a uh, city of gold and slaves which was really historically the case um but all, all of this stuff is rushing together and people are searching for solutions and therefore there's lots of money in this in the city and therefore there's lots of opportunities for adventure we're sort of building a cauldron for adventure uh, we're going to go with that. So we're going to monkey with a little bit of the dating. But we're not um, monkeying with the flavor. And all the names are authentic, although the, I've invented characters and put Norse or Celtic names on all of them uh, with patronyms rather than surnames. Um, but I've followed all the conventions, done all the research to make sure that, you know, because it's more fun that way. Yes, I can make stuff up out of whole cloth, and I do that all the time. I'm working on the realms. It, it, I'm, I'm used to doing it. It's not hard for me to do. It's actually a lot more work to do the uh, uh, research and do keep it historical. But again, it's more fun to treat everything as as the goalposts and design within them. Uh, I can design on blank canvases uh, very easily. It gives me maximum freedom, but these days, I am usually designing for a client of some sort, whether I'm, it's paid or not, so, uh, whether it's just a friend who wants something for their campaign. Um, what do you need? What's happened already? Where, which direction? What are you interested in? Is this going to be dungeon crawls or down into the Underdark? Or do you want political intrigue? Uh, what do you need me to give you um, as meat? to, to um, use at the gaming table. Okay, that'll be my touchstone. That'll determine the direction. It's a lot more fun. So that's what I usually do. I'm I'm designing within uh, a set of goalposts. And it, that way, I know I'm designing something that you, the, the end user, want. And in the same way, if I'm doing a panel at a convention, I will say, what do you guys want me to talk about? Because it's far more worthwhile. I can flap my jaws about anything, but if we've only got a limited time, I might as well be talking about what you guys want to hear about, so I'm not wasting your time. And so that the panel will be more useful to you rather than, oh, he spent all the time talking about his latest project. No, what do you want to hear about? That's what we'll talk about. It's, it's, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to be a service industry because that's what it really is. If somebody's that's what it comes down to, yeah. Yeah. If somebody's paying for your your um shiny new thing, gaming thing, you're you're in theory, you're helping them in with their game or something they can use, even if it's just as inspiration. You know, the 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 many, many, many gamers who don't have anybody to game with. So they actually treat your latest novel or your latest game thing as entertainment to read in bed you know they're never going to game but they are going to enjoy it as a work of fiction um it's that sort of stuff i'd rather be writing what you you want to consume 
rather than saying, oh, I think it's great if we do this. No, oh, what do you want? It's the, yeah, um, even as a freelancer, I've always found personally that if you give me those gold posts, like if you give me the sandbox, the at least the canvas that I have to work in, I find it a lot easier than to just have a blank page and just say, you know, have someone that says, go wild. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do what you want. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing wrong with going weld, and, and I, I like going weld until the police come. Uh, <laughs> what is the uh, strangest thing that you've ever designed? I'm trying to think what be, what craziest or most unusual thing would be, and I'm, I'm sort of drawing a blank because um, when I'm working on them, they're not crazy or unusual. They're just, okay. This is the way where we're rolling right now. Um, so you don't think right. of it that way. Um, there have been... There have been adventures where everybody was shape-shifted and everybody was deceiving in some way. Um, the sort of classic um, locked room murder mystery things, and which are... You know, increasingly difficult to do in fantasy settings as spells get better by the way um because in, in, mm -hmm. nothing can be concealed so you you want things to be like the early uh, period mysteries in 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 murder mysteries where we didn't understand fingerprints yet or there wasn't dna testing or you know and then there can be uh, murderers can get a get away with stuff they can't get away with now sort of thing so um yeah the, those sort of things were unusual uh i have done uh designing for games where it was a very long um long game in that you were designing to uh fight the other players or your rival players to rule a kingdom for a certain number of centuries so you had to get your family onto the throne and keep them there um by judicious murders um and breeding programs so things like that were were unusual in that that's not something that you normally tackle within a, a game system um stuff that's going to last for generations and you're setting up um that actually was really interesting because uh, because success in those sort of games was having a plan a b c and d because you know if if all of your family heirs got offed you're going never mind this guy way back here had this many bastard offspring that you didn't know about or you overlooked so one of them can now become the you know <laughs> um let's legitimize one at random yeah so it, then it becomes like oh, okay so uh, the more um uh discovering other people um that sort of stuff so those were unusual in that they they were things you don't normally design for in a game no i haven't seen a lot of games that were focused on uh on breed i mean from now on i'm going to call any type of type of dynasty just a social breeding program because i think i think it's a more apt description of what it was what sort of tools do you use to world build write create like you know do you, do you is it just 
the old-fashioned uh, notebook and pencil, and then eventually you type that into a computer? Or do you have, like, specific software you use? Or are you just Word documenting it? What are we doing? Yeah, Word documenting it. Uh, it used to be just pencil and paper. And then um, starting at the time of um, my first TSR novel, Spellfire, so that was 1986 when I was writing it, 1987 when it came out publishers were getting rid of their secretarial pools and um shoving the actual typing work onto the authors so handwritten manuscripts were no longer uh, or were falling out of favor and acceptability you were expected to type it yourself whereas before that the long-suffering ladies in the secretarial pool would do it um which was a mixed blessing for writers because um, when I'm turning over a, a, a medieval manuscript in which um, characters say, Prithee, my lord, dost not thou how I trow? And some poor middle-aged lady in the Midwest scratching her head and saying, uh, the company merger will work better if, because she's trying to turn it into what she does in her day job, which was to take asshole bosses who are striding back and forth, thinking aloud in the office, and saying things like, tell the old buzzard that we're going to take over his company. Turn that into proper business English, Sally. You know, which is, that's, that's what her day job is. And, and she's desperately trying to turn this into proper business English. And, you know, you, the fantasy writer, wish she wouldn't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you wanted it to be that way. So, I mean, it was a, for us, it was, you know, somewhat of a good thing but it also meant we we had to use uh, computers we could no longer get away with um, longhand the, the good old days so to speak i mean i'm not my hair is not completely gray uh i think no it's not a, a lot of it has fallen but anyway that's besides the point <laughs> uh even even in school by the time i finished 11th grade we so kind of like the start of high school for American uh, uh, listeners. We were it. It was on the cusp of. So we weren't allowed to have laptops. Tablets didn't exist anyway back then. Um, calculators were allowed, but that was like a fairly new thing in the school I was at. So I still went to university to college, you know, writing longhand, and I have completely lost it. I started taking notes by hand again earlier this year just to get back in the swing of things and it is atrocious i cannot follow along anything less so remember or even reread what i've written before uh it's just it's apparently not like riding a bicycle and i've lost it and and i think i think for a lot of people yeah and your hand cramps uh, Devin, you'd know this from oh, yes. mapping for, you know, but it's the same thing. If you have to write in cursive, after the first hour or so, your hand is going, you know. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah, because I still, uh, even though I work on a tablet now, it's the same as I do on paper. So I'm still hand drawing everything. And uh, I, I mean, I draw obsessively. So I actually draw on an average of like, five or six hours a day mm -hmm. but I've had days where I can't even let go of my pen 
It's just stuck in my hand. My wife has to come over and uncurl my hand around the pen. I can't get it out. I I, I get what you're where you're coming from. Yeah. And the other thing is, there there are days when things are going swimmingly. The creativity is going swimmingly. You don't want to stop because it's your happy place. And even though you know you have to because you're running out of time and you have this other obligation, or you've got to eat before you pass out, or um, you've got you've got to do this before this other time, so the, the, we're running out. Of, you know, whatever it is, you don't want to stop because there are times when it won't go swimmingly, and you know those times. So when it is, it's like, ah, oh, I'm in my happy place. Yeah, not letting go of this pen until someone pries it out of my fucking hands. Or you realize you haven't eaten in like 16 hours. See, this is one of the reasons why I'm contemplating putting a um, refrigerator in my office. Ed, if you could choose your next... So after you're done all of the projects that you're working on at the moment, if you could choose your next one... What would it be? Uh, I think I would like to get back to pumping out a solid dozen Forgotten Realms novels before I shuffle off this mortal coil. Just because um, I can't legally publish any at the moment because the novel writing program got shut down. Um, and therefore I miss them. It's like anything else. You you can't do you miss it the moment you can um and and that would be one thing i i'd love to do i'd love to get to um if i had to do something completely new i think i'd like to try something like akin to uh what lynn carter um was trying before his untimely death which was he was trying to build the history of an imaginary place so writing fiction that was non-fiction from his point of view and he would do the world building we do uh, as a matter of course um, in role playing games that wasn't a matter of course in fantasy back then he would design the coins he would design the fashions but he would have a central story and in his case it was a history of this city state Kimurium um, the city of a hundred kings from the coming of Aviathar the lion to the passing of Sviridian the doomed in other words he was going to tell the entire history of the rise and fall of this city state as fiction and he'd do it in stilted almost biblical prose not all the begats but I mean <laughs> in stately prose um, and that would be a fascinating thing to try I, uh, and again, I, I'm going to stress for our listeners, this is one of the reasons why things like Patreon uh, is so important for creatives. It gives us the freedom to create without having to, uh, without having to have a job outside of doing this, unless we want it, of course. And or uh, we've made the mistake of getting addicted to food. Right, right. Because, I mean, you know, there's that. <laughs> But, you know, it, it, in general, you know, uh, support all your favorite creatives on Patreon. It's really important for us. Uh, it helps us do the things that you all love coming, uh, seeing and uh, exploring and being a part of yourself. So, Your career has expanded decades. You know, how do you how do you not get burnt out? How do you not 
uh, how do you not, like, at times just feel like it's the same thing over and over again? Like, where did that come from, Ed? That's a lot. Um, okay, this is where I, I go, I have a career? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know. Because. Sort of. Yeah, sort of, <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, um, yeah, the, to, I, I don't want to be the guy that says, give up now, walk away. Do not do this. Right. Do not do what I did, um, sort of thing. You know, because uh, yeah, if if it's what floats your boat, do it by all means. But yeah, I don't think that my quote career path is sane or co coherent. I just I'm a I'm an old fart of a gamer who just refused to go away. That's that's the right. short form. And people think I'm joking when I say that. No, that's literally the truth. I just refuse to go away. And we happen to be living in a golden age, not the gig economy part of it. The fact that for the first time, you can self-publish. There is yeah. another... Uh, the the six old hairy gatekeepers um, of my youth are gone. Um, now... I was spoiled. They were never really there for me in that I wasn't earning to get published. So I didn't feel the urgency. And I happened to grow up in a very wealthy, affluent neighborhood um, full of movers and shakers. So they, if ever anybody said no to them creatively, they just started mm -hmm. their own publishing company. They had the money. They just did it. Right. So they could build their own bridge. If somebody didn't let them walk on their bridge, they would just build their own. Um, so I, I never had that feeling of the doors are closed, which is something that um, lots of creators get these days. Um, and so, yeah, you could say, oh, I grew up privileged. Yeah, but I didn't know I was privileged. I thought this was the way it was for everybody. I didn't know any better. Um, so, uh, I would say to most people, do not make the career decisions I made because I wasn't making any career decisions. I was just drifting along and you can't do that these days because there is now mature industry built up. It didn't exist when I was a kid, which is why, you know, if I say, oh, let me give you some advice, children gather around, it's going to be useless because I'm talking right. of a different era. Everything was different. And I don't understand this era properly. Uh, that doesn't stop me giving advice because I'm human. So somebody asked me for advice. Oh, yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to be honest and say, uh, I don't know. I just did it. I didn't know you weren't supposed to do it. So I did it. Um, and and right. yeah, how do I do things? Well, I keep fresh one thing because I like to help other people, fellow creatives, friends, um, future friends, people who are going to be my friends. So when they want to do something creative and they're a fire with their first thing, so it's something different and new for me. And if they say, and I want you to collaborate with me, okay, let's collaborate. How do you want to do it? You choose. What do you mean you choose? Well, because I want to do it the way you want to do it. And it'll be different for me from the last time if we do it the way you want to do it. Oh, I was sort of 
planning on me telling you what would work, the big secret to collaborating? No, there are no secrets. You got to put your bum on the chair, your fingers on the keyboard and do it. It's that simple. How much of Ellen stirs you uh, and how much is it is, is like, this is who I want to be or whatever? Yeah, it was more like um, what people forget when they look at me and they see the the long white hair and the, the beard and they go, oh, this is your self-insert. You gotta remember, I was five years old when I created Elminster. I was right. a little kid with those plastic unbreakable cla glasses. I'm saying that in quotes because the one thing you'll learn, <laughs> they're breakable. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, uh, and, and I was clean shaven because I couldn't grow a beard yet. There was five. Um, but It'd be impressive if you could at five, though, let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the doctors would have been swarming all over me to find out what was going right. on. Wolf boy. Yeah. But <laughs> but the thing is, Elminster back then was, he would say the things that I would never dare say as a polite person in society. So he could be the crotchety mouthpiece, the to borrow uh, Oliver Hardy's lines from Laurel and Hardy. Well, here's another fine mess you've gotten us into. You know, it, it could be that sort of cantankerous commentator, um, including during play sessions. Um, he could pop up in the middle of a dungeon and say, well, you know, if you bothered to go through that secret door eight rooms back, um, you might survive this, but you didn't, so you're not going to. Bye. You know, he could be that sort of, um, you know, which was the dungeon master's way of saying, "You poor schmucks, I have to save you from yourself." Um, you know, right. um, mm -hmm. but other than that, um, he was not like Eddie's wish fulfillment fantasies. People think he is now because of how the realms has, um. Uh, developed over the years but no he never was and what he was from the very beginning was an unreliable narrator which i was building into the realms so you can't trust anything you read about the realms because it's elminster's extra propaganda rather than necessarily the truth which gives every dungeon master carte blanche for changing everything so if they have a rules lawyer sitting at the table who mm -hmm. reads everything that's published and says oh no actually you got that wrong that the god will it's like um you know you know that as a gamer your character living in the world doesn't know that where did you hear that oh i guess elminster was lying again you're just going to die. That's all, um, you know. And and literally, that uh, he has proven useful in a storytelling sense to be, you know, the old fart who says the thing that nobody dares say uh, in the middle of the book. You know. So I mean, uh, the powerful wizards who can um, literally withstand anything you can throw at them if they're ready for it. Um, they tend to be fearless with their mouths, whereas cringing servant whose livelihood and indeed life expectancy depends upon pleasing those in power doesn't dare say things out loud. The wizard doesn't care and says them. 
and they are therefore for storytelling purposes infinitely useful but no um elminster is not my um mary sue insert and if you read all the elminster novels there are an astonishing number of times when he gets limbs torn off him screws up makes a mistake um gets tricked and bested even though you know he really should know better um because i'm making it very clear that he's not you know the dungeon master's boy toy um because i don't want i remember elements in hell yes yes yeah, yeah that was fun um yeah not for him uh, <laughs> uh but i mean i do that all the time and people just sort of ignore that do you feel that um the way that you write characters or scenes now is different from when you started i mean because obviously politics you know the way that we speak and communicate with each other has changed from when you started do you are you more conscious of that now when you write or is it just no this i'm just gonna write as what comes to me uh yeah i am more conscious of it in that um there's some things you do as a rebellious teenager full of raging hormones and so on where you want to shock people you get and you get to be my age i can't be bothered shocking people anymore um what's the point um i'm not out to shock people so um yeah somebody might misinterpret that do i care not really but um you, you don't want to uh, upset readers unnecessarily you want to upset the readers deliberately when you want to upset them not for sideshow reasons oh somebody misinterpreted that oh that's unfortunate um because they're not paying attention to the central message that i'm trying to get across here um of whatever it is at the time so yeah i do write um differently and of course as we all grow up and and have life experiences and you know i grew up in the 60s and the philosophy was try everything experience everything can't write about it if you haven't experienced it that doesn't mean i go on around um butchering people with swords so i can write about it um but it does mean that you know if i'm going to wake up at dawn having slept the night in a graveyard what does it feel like what does it smell like how damp is it that sort of stuff um i i'm you know if you're going to go skippy dipping in a, uh, or write about skinny dipping in a frozen lake try it um now there are some things i'm not going to try and do things that i know are going to kill me um but i am trying to experience everything and as you experience more and more things, your writing inevitably changes. Um, you also acquire uh, not only increased sensitivity, but a certain amount of, I don't give a shit anymore. If you can't handle it, that's on you, not on me. But again, that's when I'm doing something deliberate. Like I'm driving home a point or trying to explore something. And in the case of uh, the Seven Sisters in Elminster, it's absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if you live, uh, outlive everybody, including kingdoms, not just people that you knew and loved when you were a little kid, um, you're going to end up, by our standards, insane. 
as in you're going to be mentally changed beyond what any of us shorter lifespans have experienced so from our point of view you're nuts um um and what is that how does that um how does that show in, in your life how does that affect how you behave and of course people made great hay of the fact in in sort of odd fearing um heavily censored middle america that i had a uh, storm chopping wood in the nude and see there was no sex in those books were in bobs but not in mine because i was told you can't put sex in your book said okay no problem but the shorthand of it was nudity um and it was, what it was basically was i'm saying look this woman owns this farm she lives there she literally doesn't care what other people think so for her own comfort you could say yeah but that's crazy she'll she'll cut her cut her legs or something there's nothing to protect her you know that sort of stuff but but i mean she's been doing it for low these 8 centuries if she was going to cut her leg off she would have done it already she's better with an with an axe than that so she's chopping wood in the nude and and people come to her gate to talk to her she doesn't care if they see all of her charms you know this it's the this is what happens when you're too old to care anymore and everyone's going oh my god what a dirty old man the writer no 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 i'm i'm showing you things about the character she doesn't care about things like that that's not what floats her boat and she has bigger fish to fry she's serving a goddess and there are far more important things and those sort of things she doesn't fuss about and cuz i'm showing you how all of her centuries of living have changed her or she's essentially different than other um characters that you're going to encounter in the realms at this time and yeah that has changed my writing because i've realized when people just totally misinterpret as in oh these people are so stupid i can't use sarcasm cuz they'll take it as literal so you then you then learn when not to do things because oh got it because one of the one of the things you learn when you do a realms books is they're all wor- works for hire so editors are going to walk all over your wording so i can't put subtle things in and expect them to get through the editing so i would i would say things in a certain way but the editor would change it so that the hint that i was putting in there is gone it's been edited out so therefore i have to be blunt and i've learned that over the years i have to be extremely blunt in what i say or it will get missed in the editing or some other time uh and i thought there was a bit of back and forth uh sometimes but you see what happened in the early days is the deadlines were so crazy there was no time for back and forth so you learned about an edit when you got a finished copy of the book which was when it you bought it yourself in a store because your author copies were going to come in 6 short months from now and they were going to be all the office soiled ones you know the ones they couldn't sell that were damaged that's when you were going to get your author copies and so you were going to see it in the store the same time as all the guys who paid for the book were going to see it that's how it worked um so there was no time for back and forth when you work behind the scenes and you realize that like sometimes they'll have all of these 
um, like theory crafting, mm -hmm. right? Where they fill in the blanks or they assume certain intents or, um, or links or relationships between characters, places and events. That honestly, sometimes it's just because we had to cut something out due to lack of space. Oh and, yeah. Um, and this happens, this happens to me all the time these days. I still get letters saying, uh, Mr. Greenwood, why did you have so-and-so do this? Why didn't you do this in the realms? And you go, <laughs> you think I control the realms? You think, you know, you know, but, but they do. And they, or I'll get these angry um, tweets or, or emails saying, you should fire so-and-so. This latest work was, it's like, excuse me? You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't have any employees, <laughs> but they think I do. They think I own and run, you know, um, Wizards of the Coast or Hasbro, even worse, you know, which I'm sure the people at Hasbro would find hilariously funny. Oh yeah, like like we'd let Ed up in Canada make decisions about the company, um, you know. But but they do, they believe it, and they hold you accountable for it. But I mean, yeah, there are there are all sorts of things that are done for expediency's sake, or to rescue something, or because or get shelved. You know, something happens in the real world, and all of a sudden, because of a real world event, we can't release that movie. We can't release that computer game because its theme is now very similar. Uh, the, the the classic one, um, yeah, uh, Thomas Harris, Black Sunday. You know, fly planes into um, uh, buildings and begin this terrorist, and bingo somebody does it in real life well you're not going to get to publish another novel about that until people have calmed down just not going to happen it's a real world thing that happens um and it doesn't matter if you had a movie or a book finished it's going to get shelved maybe forever and that happens in gaming as in everything else or just what is flavor of the month changes yeah sometimes you have something that would be topical and then need to change it last minute and that means that certain things, you know, have to go out the window or certain things will be left unexplained. Um, it's just funny that it's often, you know, a not necessarily a business decision, but it's, you know, it's like, oh, during my weekly meeting this week, uh, we had to, we decided to throw away like this and that part of world building in our game. And then all of a sudden, you know, people think that, oh, no, you've spent, you know, hours in, in, religious meditation to determine what needed to stay and go and why every little tidbit is is everywhere and sometimes it's just now nah, we we were over by five pages and we needed to you know bring the page count down by five pages so yeah and we had to make that decision today now yeah yeah so there's no time to agonize over it you just do it and move on well if it helps it happens in every aspect of oh sure yeah. creating because uh i uh, magic the gathering did a lord of the mm -hmm. rings version and uh they had me make 10 cards for them of the map so uh which you know I, i'm gorgeous by the way i fan thank you yes yes gorgeous uh, agree you've seen them yes uh, um, I'm a huge, I'm a huge um, Lord of the Rings fan, Tolkien fan. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. 
So uh, getting to do them was a tremendous honor. Absolutely loved it. I like completed them in a ridiculously short amount of time because I have all them, you know, obviously the map memorized by far. Uh, can draw to my sleep. And, you know, I was super stoked about it. Couldn't talk about it for over a year. And uh, finally gets released. And then a bunch of people are like, so why did you make this whatever land? Why did you decide to use this part of the map? Why doesn't it make a full map if you put them all together? I'm like, I don't get to choose any of that. That's not my yeah. choice. I don't design for Magic the Gathering. I just, I just draw art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there you are, squatting in your cave. Yes. Ruling the world with your marionette strings. <laughs> yes. Why are you doing this to us, cruel devil? Right. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah Why'd you yeah. make them all green? Because it's land. <laughs> I don't know. Because that's what they told me, like... You know, I asked about palette. This was what I was given. I worked with what I got. Sorry you don't like it. I mean, not really. If you don't like it, I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, not sorry. Right. Yeah. You know, but if you have a problem... I'm so sorry you can't handle the world. I am right. so deeply sorry. <laughs> right. I'm so sorry that the world doesn't cater to your every whim, thought, and desire. But kind of not. <laughs> Because clearly, <laughs> you wouldn't have chosen my maps. But yeah, I was like, why would you think? Why would you think an artist gets to choose how the card is used? Like, you know. And I, I realize a lot of people don't don't quite grasp, understand, you know, um, how modules are made, how books are are written when you're working with another company. And we see this all the time with things that happen with Wizards of the Coast. And the community gets in an uproar. And, you know, like a perfect example is the latest uh, issue with using AI. And, you know, I, uh, the amount of people that have asked me about it, and I'm like, I, I can tell you as somebody who's done work with wizards, you know, you get your, you get your concept art from them well, along with the scope and everything of what they want you to do. You create your piece, it's approved, and then it just sits until it's ready to go to layout because it's already been approved. And then layout gets it. They're not editors. They're not art directors. They don't know. And it isn't until the final approval goes through that you can genuinely be like, oh shit, how did this get past anybody? But... You know, getting a lot of, like, how did this go to print? Mm. Because a year or half ago, when this artwork was being done, AI wasn't a thing enough to recognize clearly. Mm -hmm. And it was approved. And then it sat there untouched, unlooked at, until it went to layout. And then layout, that gets its final approval and it goes to printing. That's how it ends up there. It's not like... It's not like there's one person at Wizards going, ah, ha, 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 we've gotten a piece of artificial intelligence art past them all. You know, like, there's there's no one trying to be a dick to everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, especially when you work with that many artists, it's really hard to, like, it. it is the, the bread and butter of a lot of companies and a lot of books. We all want the art. 
So I don't think that there's a company out there like, ha ha ha, we're trying to fuck everybody else over and screw over artists and, and using artificial intelligence. I think, however, you know, stuff, unfortunately, especially when a project passes through a bunch of different hands in order to be created, it, it so much gets lost along the way. The potential for error happens. Yeah, it, it, it becomes exponential. Yeah, and, and Hollywood has had this problem since the star system collapsed, which, of course, was its own way of controlling and dominating people. Right. Because uh, any movie that gets made is this incredible dance of, I want this director, and I want this leading man, and I want this leading lady, and so-and-so is busy with this project, and but I want so-and-so, and I want to maybe we can get so-and-so and then so-and-so has to drop out because and then so you know and, and it's like this dance of putting all these people together it's a wonder that any of them ever get made at all you know right <laughs> yeah no same thing and and it you know being friends with with so many other creatives that work with wizards and to watch them just absolutely crumble because a project that they've worked really hard on is now completely overshadowed by an error. It's just, oh man, my heart goes out to them every time. I'm like, I'm so sorry. It's kind of like how um, wizards accidentally put miles instead of feet on the maps that I made for the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. I still get asked about this. Like, there's a house uh, in one of them that's like, I it's don't like know, three miles along. 20 miles yeah. long. Right. And I'm like, that's it's feet. Come on now. <laughs> you gotta know it's feet. But thanks mm -hmm. for pointing it out years later. Love hearing about it. That you think yeah. I can't tell the difference between a mile and feet. All right, that's awesome. <laughs> and and I get that too, because uh, I was hand drawing all the realms maps for me and handing them in. Right. And and Jim Ward was saying, Oh, ESR is not gonna publish any maps without scales. What's the scale on this map? And I said, see that little thing drawn down on the bottom? You know that ruler line? That's a map scale. And you see how it's clearly labeled? He didn't know what a map scale looked like. So he assumed there was no scale on the maps. And it was like, Ugh. you know, <laughs> but he's in charge of the, you know, so yeah. Um, right. And it's not anybody's, it, it's just, as you said, there's this long chain of people and the longer the chain gets, more potential there is for a tiny slip-up to happen just because there are that many actors in the chain to to go back to your hollywood analogy or to have someone along that chain just that just decides oh i need to have this inserted in the product now like i really want this yeah. to be in and now you have to yeah. go back to the drawing board and change whatever it is that Are you allowed to say things that are canon for Faerun that aren't in the books? Like, And in fact, although the company, the current company stance from the copyright holder right now is that canon only comes from them. You know, they, they would... Uh, in fact, the original Realms contract, and if they want to throw aside the contract, well, I guess, guess I get the Realms back. So where's all the money, folks? Um original anything i say or write about the realms is canon by definition until it's superseded by a 
more recent published product. So if I say um, people in this country, like Veldor, and just to pick an example at random, have long floppy noses or long floppy something else's, it's canon until they contradict it in a later published work. And that's, the, that's part of the original Realms Agreement, and that's the way it's always been. So yeah, um, what I say is canon until they contradict it. That's the way we worked it out for how we would run the realms because and our guiding light in this was marvel comics which we'd all worked for and on and were fans of as in you had to pick up and use other people's toys that were already in the sandbox and there were rules about how you broke the toys and what you put them back into the sandbox when you were finished your story and one of them was it was considered very bad form and bad writing to change the essential character of an established character to fit your plot unless you had an in-game reason for changing it, like the one the person went insane or something. You couldn't just have them act out of character because it made it easier to tell the plot that you'd thought up. You, you had to um, respect the toys you were given and put them back more or less as you found them, unless it was approved that you could kill off somebody or whatever. And in the same way, we had an agreement for the realms. Don't blow up the moon um, was Jeff Grubbs. Uh, he was the realm's first realm's traffic cop. And mine was, for every loose end you tie off in the realms, I want three new ones. So if you're going to... If I built a loose end in, and for lazy storytelling purposes in a published product, you're going to use it up, burn it. Okay, the price of burning one of my loose ends is I want three new ones. Because that way, the world will always feel alive. It will always feel that it has a life outside the adventure in hand. So that if you, if your player characters take three months off to recuperate or uh, train or something like that, the world will travel on without them. It won't be a lifeless backdrop that just stops dead until they step on stage again. It, things will continue to happen. The world is alive. That was the. And that's why we built it in that way. And that, as far as I'm concerned, is the way things are still going. Um, again, the current copyright holder might disagree. I have no evidence one way or the other. But it doesn't matter what they say or do about things not being canon. Nope. We have a legal agreement in place. And if they want to break it, I guess I get the realms back. Because that's in the legal agreement too, the reversion. So therefore, if they want to hang on to this setting... They gotta abide by the rules that we agreed to. I don't have much power, and I gave up, you know, tons of money and so on in order to keep that power. And that power was just purely because I didn't want them to decide the setting wasn't selling, abandon it a couple months after they started publishing it, and then I couldn't use quote my world ever because they owned it. It, it was an orphan clause, as far as I was concerned. It was not a power and control clause. It was a, don't, don't orphan my world on me. If you're going to not use it, I get it again. And so there is a reversion clause in there. And and part of the uh, what's canon, that's all part of the same agreement. So they can't say, oh no, we don't agree with that anymore. I mean, yes, they can say that, but they can't legally get away with saying that. I can say, oh really? Well, my lawyers want to talk to you. Um, because I get the whole kitten caboodle back. No, you don't. This is do. And if you've if you've wrapped um, D and D up in the realms, that's your problem. 
Because that'll be the defense. Oh no, this is not the realms. This is D&D, the brand. You don't own that. You're right, I don't own that. And I have no claim on it. But if you've used... If you've wrapped the two of them together, that's your bad, not mine. And like, this is this is something... I, I find that very interesting, but also to the people listening to the podcast. Like, these are the type of things you also have to think about when you're about to sign a contract. Or any type of work like there are clauses that you should look into you should get yourself a a copyright lawyer um because yeah sometimes you know you don't know about about certain things and sometimes it's done maliciously sometimes it's not but like you could end up and you hypothetical you right you could end up giving away the rights to something you created and never be able to ever do anything with it again as a creative, it is one of my worst fears to have, like, my babies taken away from me. It is one of the reasons why all of my contracts have it in there that I retain the art rights to everything I create. I'm able to sell it. I'm able to uh, have it on my website. I'm just not able to present it for commercial use for other people. But it's something that, again, I come from a business background. So for me, that was a no-brainer. The amount of artists that have come up to me and like, don't have that in their contract. And I'm like, okay, we need to immediately revise your contracts because this is something that you're really going to wish you had had. Even if it's just, it's not a matter of something going somewhere and blowing up and becoming big. Uh, Just simply as an artist, you should retain the rights to everything that you create to some degree. question for you ed so when you started making the realms yes dnd wasn't a thing yet and so there were things in the realm in the realms that were created that were put there uh without i guess concern for this will later be like a game with classes and levels and and yada 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 what are some of the original things that you've added in there that have remained relatively untouched since uh most of the core geography has um, remained as it was, uh, and I'm talking now about Faroon, and um, most of the major uh, characters, the root characters, uh, did not star novel by someone else because most um, people writing novel length works want to um, create their own protagonists or antagonists um, and the publisher wants them to as well. So Given those two two forces um, working in tandem, they they usually end up being um, uh, something the art the author has added to the realms. Uh, yeah, m- most of the basic way that things work and how I, I figured out the sanitation and stuff that is um, pretty much as it was. Just because um, in the first thirty years of the realms being published. Uh, they would go back to me um, all the time to check on things for lore because it was just easier. Why don't we just ask the guy who knows um, where the closets are, let alone what skeletons are in them, because he's sitting right up there at, at a public library in Canada, which means if we phone it, he will answer the phone and say, can I help you? Because that's his job. So why don't we use him? <laughs> and and so they did. Um, so as a result, uh, a lot of that stuff hasn't uh, essentially changed at all so yeah um, um, a lot of things stay the same because uh people are always in a hurry 
and they're they're telling stories. Now the other thing is, uh, as uh, not not when D and D was first came um, appeared as the three booklets, but by the time the player's handbook joined the monster manual, the advanced Dungeons and Dragons, I was quietly changing things to fit D and D as a sort of skeleton because. Um, Jack Vance's magic system, um, the fire and forget from the dying earth, with with the um, Jack's permission, Barry had used it, uh, his approval, and I was thinking as an author, this keeps me honest. This keeps me from ever succumbing to the temptation of um, having my um, magic user, my my wizard, just be a god in the machine who can do anything that I need to for the story plot. Uh, there are limitations to the magic, and here they are all worked out. Um, same with the, you add that to the monsters in the monster manual. Oh, here are all the monsters from classic mythology and folklore, plus a bunch of cool new ones. Um, and here's how they are all statted out and how they go together and who can beat who and how this works. Oh, good. I will just quietly follow that for the realms. So therefore, it made it very easy to um, just quietly make this a game world when gameplay started. And gameplay was uh, a new way to tell stories in in which the people sitting around the table could actually participate in the storytelling as opposed to um, me, the writer, making all the decisions about what people went where and what they did. It was it was actually like having real life characters coming to life and making decisions, sometimes stupid ones, but they were making their own decisions in front of my eyes, and and therefore it was inherently more interesting for storytelling's sake. Oh, I would never have thought of that. Why the hell is she doing that? Oh my God, this is not going to go well, or whatever. Um, and and therefore it was very attractive to me, very interesting. Try this. So, I tried it. It was cool. <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. How much uh, game design do you do? Like, how now, when you write? Oh, uh, when I'm writing straight fiction, not in the realms. Um, it is It is now ingrained in me to make sure I know the limitations of things and how things work, how a magic system works in a world, for instance. So I can't I can't not think of that when I'm writing. It's automatic now. Um, I do a huge amount of game design and writing um, for many settings and worlds, you know, from Galarian or Paizo and so on, um, Idgard for Cobalt Press. You know, that I, I, I have now designed all sorts of things in all sorts of worlds. And the design process, I'm, I happen to be one of these um, uh, crazies who enjoys writing. I like the process, as opposed to the people who hate writing, but like having written. No. Uh, oh, the writing process was terrible. Oh, I lost so many pounds, but now I'm finished, and now I can enjoy the fruits of my labor. No, I actually enjoy the process. I don't mean that it's always swimmingly easy. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But I actually enjoy it. Well, I'm sure when you're working on maps, the actual doing it is enjoyable. Yeah. I don't. I don't think anyone would draw that many tiny little trees. Yes. <laughs> if they didn't, 
The one card I'm gonna count one day just because I can. The one card that I did of um, uh, Merkwood mm. has hundreds, hundreds of trees on it because I I so wanted to represent how vast this forest is and how how thick it was uh, that I. Every time I tried to draw it with like less trees, it just didn't look as good. Even though I knew it was going to be on a tiny little card. <laughs> yep. As I, I actually printed it out every time that I kind of did like a reiteration of that little area, because I I needed them to be. I needed it to look the way that it should, even if nobody else cared or noticed. Didn't matter. I was like, no, it, it needs to be. I and it also. I originally wanted to do different coloring on it, but I had to stick to the palette that I was given. Mm-hmm. Um, because Merkwood is a, a different colored forest, so to speak, or or is presented that way. And artistically, I would love to make those choices, but you are working in someone else's IP, so you kind of like need to stick to a to what they want, so mm-hmm. it's more congruent with all of the art that they're creating for the deck. It, but you know. But yeah, I again, you would not draw hundreds of trees on a map. I love it. I sit there and just kind of zone out and create maps and world build and tell stories while I'm doing it and write really weird little notes the entire time. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you don't enjoy the process, why are you doing it? Right. Well, I also think that that, that's what makes a tremendous difference between somebody who... um, it is an artist and somebody who's just drawing or just painting. Like it's it's the big difference between to use the the example artificial intelligence because it it can't create art with the same emotion that a human being can. Mm-hmm. And that's I mean it would still be pretty to look at but you can't train it to have depth or emotion or to to put in the easter eggs that humans do. Because it doesn't understand that concept. I think you could have stopped your sentences after the third word. It can't create. Yes, <laughs> but... <laughs> but, uh, you know, in reference to, like, other people as well, when you are when you are creating something out of passion, uh, out of something, just a love of what you do, I started making maps because I love playing D&D and I was a little, I was a teenager playing this game and just drawing a map and being goofy and then going to school the next day and asking my earth science teacher how our planet works to <clears throat> much to his enjoyment, you know, and sent sent home with like a, a stack of books and a list of other things to read and it spurred my love of earth sciences and that plays into how I make maps. But... The artistic side of it is, you know, I see a lot of people's maps. I get asked a lot to critique them. There's a big reason I don't. One, because if you are making a map and it serves its purpose and its function, then there's nothing to critique. You know, you're telling whatever part of the story you need to tell with your map. That's up to you. And don't let other people tell you otherwise. But also at the same time, I'm still ultimately an artist who does paintings and does things other than maps and I just applied my artistic skills to it and therefore artistically 
I've got opinions, but I, I leave those to my own art because one, I'm not an art director. Uh, I'm not somebody who teaches other people art. You do you. I do me. <laughs> and wouldn't it be refreshing if half the planet applied that philosophy instead of trying to tell everybody what to do every five seconds? Ah, uh, yes. Wouldn't it be amazing? <laughs> but yeah. And you can't, I mean, again, we are, all the trolls that we get, all the people who tell us what we're doing wrong, all the people who love to jump on the opportunity to, well, actually us, uh, to tell us what, something we're doing is wrong or <clears throat> not to whatever standard they like, you really, really have to love what you're doing to put up with all of that shit. Yep. So, again, if you think you're getting into this for fame or money or whatever other stuff, I'm sorry. You should probably not get into this industry then. <laughs> you kind of have to have nerves of steel. Well, the other thing is, is like it, a great example is um, fame is relative, right? Outside of this industry, how many people know any of our names? Yes. Yeah. Um, I actually find that um, a relief. Yes. <laughs> because um, I'm not going to have paparazzi try and look up my legs and get a photograph of it when I'm getting out of a car. Not that they would be thrilled by what they saw. But I mean, I can function in normal life and nobody knows who the hell I am. And, you know, yeah. I can be lionized at Gen Con. I can be asked to father babies. I can be asked to sign body parts. And I step outside the convention center and nobody knows who I am or cares. And that is such a relief. It is, <clears throat> it is nice to, to have the, the wonderful family that we have in the tabletop space, uh, to have that sense of closeness and everyone knowing everybody. But man, let me tell you, every once in a while, it's just really nice to step outside this world and not have anybody tell me how to do my job, ask me really weird questions about the people I've worked with. <laughs> uh, I've had somebody ask me what Matt Mercer's hair smells like. Oh, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I've never, I ne like I've hugged him. I've never like, like, sniffed him. I never thought about like what his hair smells like. I don't know. Shampoo? <laughs> yes. Yes, it did smell like shampoo. I mean, you're tall enough you just sniff everyone's heads. Well, yeah. Uh, well, no, yeah. we were actually writhing around on the floor at, um, on Stream of Many Eyes together because guess what? Yes. You know when they talk about um, having a star on your dressing room door? Uh -huh. That's because everybody else changes in the hall together. Yeah. That's how Hollywood works. And we were all changing in the hall together. It didn't matter your gender or whatever. So we were crawling onto the floor because we didn't want to leave um, stuff that other people would trip over when they were hurrying to their next queue. So we, we were continually scooping things to the side, like you would if you were like in high school and doing something on the floor of the uh, corridor that all the students are using to get from class to class. You're constantly raking your stuff to the side. So yeah, yeah, I, it did smell like shampoo. <laughs> Matt and I were like on top of each other at one point. 
right. you know, and he's saying, oh, I really admire your work. And, and then Marissa came up and said, blah, 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 because they had to be somewhere. And so we, that was our moment. <laughs> yeah, he said, yeah. we, catch you later. Boom, gone. I mean, that's, I, that's always how it is with him, though. He's, he's so painfully busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, also, he's, he's loving it. So yeah. parts of it. I don't want to. Also, please stop quoting me, people. I don't fucking speak for Matt Mercer or anybody at Critical Role. This is just personal observations. <laughs> Can we not? <laughs> See, you get to say something that's canon, and it is. I say something even jokingly and get a bunch of people who think it's canon. So I now, and I'm a huge fan of the show, of Critical Role, and I don't get to talk about it. Because I've had people quote me like like I'm writing it. I I didn't write any part of Alexandria. I am literally being hired by Matt to make the maps. And I make it to his vision, not mine. <clears throat> so, you know, uh, it, but it does. It makes me feel very uncomfortable because I don't want to take anything away from them as a creative force. I don't want to imply... You know, yes, there's creative back and forth and I get to say things here and there about like this wouldn't work or this should or this would be in this area. But that's it. Like they're minor things Mm -hmm. to just help the map or the area look better or something to work easier. And that's it. But it's really unnerving (laughs) to have people like walk up and like, you know, quote me on something and like that becomes canon and i'm like it's not if you don't hear it on the show from matt it's not canon mm-hmm. please stop yep so it makes me nervous yep and that that's something we all have to deal with and it, i mean i've had people argue with me online about stuff in the realms it's <laughs> like um <clears throat> i created that <laughs> for our listeners Writing a, a book, a novel, is different than writing a campaign setting. You do want to give your players and your DMs as much freedom to play in the world how they want at their table. And this is one of the reasons why there is so many people that push back on campaign settings that are written in a way that that force particular topics or situations into the story, regardless of how somebody wants to play at a table. If you want to write books about it, that's up to you. But a campaign setting isn't necessarily you dictating how the game should be played a specific way. Yeah, like your setting needs to have room for potential for adventures, potential for misadventures and conflict. Right. And if you force a certain... Uh, if you force everything in like a little box, then the only thing you can tell is that one story that you forced everything into. But at that point, just write it as a novel. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there needs to be villains in your world. There needs to be conflict. Yeah. yeah. There will be conflict one way or another, because without conflict, even the most benign type of conflict, there will mm-hmm. be no story. I mean, there are limits to this. If you're writing a novel um, or doing a setting of gothic horror and somebody buys it and says, oh, this was scary. I don't like scary things. You should have written it so it wasn't scary. Um, It's a setting for gothic horror. You picked it up for gothic horror. Um, 
don't be surprised if there's gothic horror folks uh but uh, beyond, right come on yeah <laughs> beyond that yeah um and of course one of the delights of role-playing um games is that uh players can be creative they can do things um that aren't the usual way of handling a situation and god knows they will as anybody who's ever designed for <laughs> um yeah mm -hmm. the 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 players sitting around the table will not do what you hope they do or anticipated. They'll do something else because players. <laughs> because everybody thinks very differently. And especially when you are in a, uh, a team setting that is promoted in this game, uh, you know, you end up with people that genuinely one, either one don't think as a, a team player, not necessarily like a bad thing, but just that they're like, oh, this is what this is what my character can do. And they don't reflect on how that could help or hinder another player. And then you have people that are like, oh, no, I could totally buff this person and give them a chance to, like, you know, do something um, unexpected or beyond. And a lot of times, for whatever reason, we all just sometimes hear something entirely different despite having talked about it. And then just decide we're going to do our own individual things anyhow, because we all had a different conversation, even though it was the same one together. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like, let's just ignore the, I don't know, the whole eight hour discussion we just had about how we're going to handle this. And instead, think that we got the gist of it and just go and do our own individual things. Yeah, that works fantastic for dms every time <laughs> do not apply that lesson from the gaming table to the real world folks right because uh, because people yeah. can and will hit you <laughs> uh i actually every time that my players go off on a tangent about well we actually do this out of game now because i i realize that if we do it in game it it just gets a little unwieldy time-wise. So I'm like, okay, if we're going to discuss plans, then we're going to end the session here or, you know, or, or pick it up whenever at a different point and do something else because so God help me, my players will sit there and debate for hours on it. And I'm just sitting there going, I, there's no point in me listening to what any of you have planned because when it actually goes to happen, you're still not going to do any of that. Right. Right. So, yeah, I can't I can't use any of this to like prep what might happen because y'all are just gonna fucking do what you want the the second we go to roll for initiative anyhow. So fuck it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love my players. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> Listen, uh, my players were all um, some level of blind, so my players have a very fun way of tackling issues that absolutely fucking surprise the shit out of me almost every time I throw an unusual situation at them. You know, we just experience the world very differently is all I, all I really can say about it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, it's just, you know, when, when you don't have to rely on where somebody is in a room, or you can't rely on where somebody is in relation to you in a room, you find other ways to like figure out 
how to harm somebody you can't see <laughs> or how to contain somebody you can't see. So, you know, my, my players are really ingenuitive and I'm never fucking prepared for whatever it is that they have planned ever. This is one of the reasons why uh, I joke all the time that we won't stream our games because it, it's, it's, um, we have to bend the rules a little bit because we aren't, we aren't using visuals the same way. And because of that, you know, we, we kind of like designed our own little world and system to use, um, in order to make it kind of work with the way that we create characters and tell our story. And not that it's a tremendous difference, but it's a, it's enough that, you know, we kind of had to build a lot of stuff ourselves, but they, they're wonderful at, um, at, at breaking their own rules that they've made. Um, but they're fantastic at keeping within the physics of our world, which I love them for, because it's like a big thing for me as a creator as well. Like these are the physics. This is, this is what can and can't happen in this world. Please just abide by that. That's all I'm asking. You know, kind of like on, on Earth, you can't just magically levitate because of gravity. So you need something that, that makes that actually happen. So they actually apply all of that in our world. But at times, man, do they really, they really test those uh, laws of physics. <laughs> what are players, if not people that are constantly trying to break yes. the universe? Ultimate. Well, the great thing is, is that it's their own in this in this instance. So it's not like me being really precious about my world, because we built it together. We've been playing for over twenty years, so um, we've created our NPCs and everything else. Uh, so if they do it, they do it to their own world, and they are now painfully aware of how much work goes into DMing. <laughs> it's great. So they, they tend to be a little bit more respectful of, like, not doing complete world-breaking stuff. Thank the gods. 